When I was about seven, my father told me about the Holocaust. We were in the Yellow Buick on State Highway, New York 9A, and I had been asking him whether Pleasantville was actually pleasant. I cannot remember why the Nazis came up a mile or two later, but I do remember that he thought I already knew about the final solution, and so he didn't have any rehearsed way to present the camps. He said that this had happened to people because they were Jewish. I knew that we were Jewish, and I gathered that if we'd been there at the time, it would have happened to us, too. I insisted that my father explain it at least four times, because I kept thinking I must be missing some part of the story that would make it make sense. He finally told me, with an emphasis that nearly ended the conversation, that it was pure evil. But I had one more question. Why didn't those Jews just leave when things got bad? They had nowhere to go, he said. At that instant, I decided that I would always have somewhere to go. I would never be helpless, dependent, or credulous. I would never suppose that just because things had always been fine, they would continue to be fine. My notion of absolute safety at home crumbled then and there. I would leave before the walls closed outside the ghetto, before the train tracks were completed, before the borders were sealed. If genocide ever threatened midtown Manhattan, I would be all set to gather up my passport and head for some place where they'd be glad to have me. My father had said that some Jews were helped by non-Jewish friends, and I concluded that I would always have friends who were different from me, the kind who could take me in or get me out. That first talk with my father was mostly about horror, of course, but it was also in this regard a conversation about love. And over the course of time, I came to understand that you could save yourself with broad affections. People had died because their paradigms were too local. I was not going to have that problem. Andrew, thank you so much for reading From Far and Away. Um, it's an incredibly powerful beginning to your book, an incredibly powerful catalyst for, tra for travel. Um, presumably, with all the traveling that you've done, you, it doesn't feel quite so powerful with all the journeys that you make, but that impetus clearly was for you, wasn't it, as a child? The impetus was very strong. I mean, I think the impetus was multifactorial. I think that was a big piece of it. I also think that as a gay person, I in some ways felt like a foreigner within my own society. Mm -hmm. And I liked the idea of going to places where I was actually a foreigner in a more concrete and accessible way. But I always had a sense that not knowing what the rest of the world was like was dangerous and frightening and that going to places was not only something that I would find interesting and stimulating, but that it was sort of a, a necessity if one wanted to have any feeling of safety. You mentioned there about being a gay man. There's a great line in the opening uh, chapter in your book where you say that dual nationality and gay marriage were things that you had only a sort of tenuous enthusiasm for until you actually tried them. Um, and, and that thing about having a, a dual nationality meant that you had a, the sort of ability to think of yourself as a world citizen. Is that right? It really did. I uh, had residence permission in Britain for a while. I studied here and then I lived here. And then at some point, it was possible for me to apply for a passport. 
I was meant to meet eight criteria, and seven of them I met perfectly well. I had never been arrested. I had paid my taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But the eighth one was that I not have spent more than, I think it was six weeks, out of Britain in any of the previous seven years. Mm. And I had, in fact, been spending a great deal of time out of Britain. I was writing a book about Russia, and I was really living much of the time in America, especially because uh, my mother was ill and I had gone to help take care of her. So I said that to my solicitor, and I said, do you think that there's anything I can do? And he said, I don't, I don't think so. You don't meet the criteria. And I said, could I write them a letter? And he said, I suppose there's nothing to lose. So I wrote a slightly ludicrous letter in which I explained that while I had had to be in Moscow for the book and in New York for my mother, that in my heart of hearts, I was loyal to the queen. And there must have been a rather bored clerk on duty that day because I got citizenship papers virtually by return post. And I did love getting them. They really did give me the sense that if things in America turned really bleak, either for me personally or just in terms of the overall situation, as is constantly a threat in American politics, mm. and especially these days, I would have some other set of options. And I liked that sense of being rooted in more than one place, that sense of duality had been so profound in my experience of the world, and it was nice to have it reified by these two passports that could sit side by side. And I think as well from your childhood, you'd, you'd had a, quite a, you know, a big affection for, for the UK. Um, it's just interesting, I think, for people listening to this in the UK who are thinking about travelling away from the UK for their holidays often don't think about how wonderful a country it is. Um, you, of course, saw the UK as, as a foreigner, and I think you had a sort of an idea of what it would be like before you got there, is that right? I had an idea of the UK that went back to early children's books that I loved and to the Scottish woman who helped take care of me when I was little and to all kinds of other uh, connections and developed what at the time was merely an affected way of speaking uh, <laughs> early on because I thought there was so much music in British parlance and so on and so forth. I had sort of an obsession um, with the UK uh, in the way that I think people do have obsessions with places that aren't natively theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and then as time went on and I actually moved here and began to live here, I came to love the UK, but for different reasons. A lot of what I had imagined it would be like wasn't what it was like, but a lot of what it was like was really spectacular. Um, and I felt that I learned different modes of friendship and different modes of expression and um, different systems of values and different priorities. Now, some of them I agree with, and in some ways I remain very American. But having been fully immersed in another way of doing things gave me a sense that all of it was a matter of choice mm. and that what would have seemed simply inevitable if I had remained all of my life in the place I came from now seemed like something that was worth considering and deciding in favor of or against. I just That idea of travel as being important uh, almost politically, because you mentioned there about it being dangerous to remain rooted in one place, but also that there is something about the knowledge that you gain from other cultures by traveling uh, within them that might be important. And in fact, I think in your opening chapter you, as well, you say that if every young adult spent two weeks in another land, then we could solve two thirds of any diplomatic crises that might arise just because of that awareness. I mean, do you still feel that way, that it is really important that people travel abroad? I feel that way very deeply and very strongly. There's a tendency to look at travel as though it were a luxury, and it can be a luxury, and there's certainly very luxurious travel available to those who can afford it. But I think travel is also a social responsibility, and that people 
whose economic circumstances uh, or whose immigration status, these uh, external things don't prevent them from going to other places, really have an obligation to go to other places. You need to go to other places in order to understand those other places. And I think that's where some of the diplomatic issue comes in. You also need to do it to understand your place, to understand the country you've come from. I'm quite a patriot for both the US and the UK. I would never have understood the US the way I do if I hadn't left it so often. Mm. And I would never have understood the UK as I do if I had been brought up here and never gone anywhere else. We live in a world in which politicians are constantly trying to frighten people, mm. saying it's virtually too dangerous to leave the house. There's this terrible wave of xenophobia and mistrust of people who are different, who are other. And the only way around that is to understand the full humanity of people who are different and who are other. And you can't do that simply by interacting a little bit with a few refugees on your shores. You have to do it by seeing where it is they live and what their lives are like as much as you are feasibly able to do. Um, people who have been into space, astronauts, they, they talk about this thing called the overview effect, which is that having seen Earth's place in the cosmos, they have a completely different sort of understanding or view about humanity and borders and cultures when they come back down. And I just wonder whether making sure that you do travel a lot is a sort of terrestrial version of the overview effect. Is, is it perhaps the only way to really understand what a global community means? I'm fascinated by those stories, which I have also heard. And I had hoped at one point that the final chapter of this book would be about going into space and having that overview effect, and I couldn't swing it. Um, <laughs> if the advances were somewhat more generous, a shadow and windows, perhaps I would have made it. Uh, I think that there, uh, I think it's terrifying always to realize how many of the things that make you feel rooted and stable and in place are actually minor and transient and in the scheme of even the planet, much less the universe, relatively insignificant. You know, we all have our driving obsessions, and they can be overpowering a lot of the time. And then you think, but does it really matter? And you suddenly find yourself in complicated existentialist territory. <laughs> I happen to be really interested in places and in travel, and I've gone to a lot of places, and I've written about a lot of places in this book. Part of my hope for it is that people who don't have the time um, or the inclination to visit so many places in reading it will have at least a little bit of a sense of what it would have been like if they had been able to go. So I think it's important, for instance, when you look at the international news to try to see how that news is being presented in the country where it's occurring and not only to see the way it gets filtered through fellow countrymen who are there issuing it on uh, local broadcast networks. I wanted to ask you as well about the sort of the difference between, um, I guess, travel and tourism, I guess, which would be the other word that we would use. Because I think that many people stick to the very safe options of, of travel, but partly because of that fear that you just mentioned, but also because it's easier. And therefore, maybe the experiences they have when they travel are incredibly limited, and they're not really engaging with the, the culture they might be visiting, they're merely observing or even living in a small enclave on their own. Uh, there's a gr another great line I'm afraid I'm going to quote back to you, which is that either you have a good time or you have a story to tell, and you're sort of open to both of those options. Um, what is it you think that makes the difference with travelling, that makes it the most um, enriching experience that it could be? 
tourism involves going to a foreign place and looking at it, um, but remaining in many ways very dissociated from it. Traveling involves going and engaging with the reality of another place, trying to talk to people who live there, trying to understand what their lives are like, trying to function in some of the ways that they function. There are very few people who manage to do one without the other. Mm. Some people are mostly tourists, but they have a little bit of that travelish engagement. Some people are travelers, but they still actually want to see the spectacular sight of the long-lost abbey and ruins that lies at the foot of the mountain. So both of those things go on all the time. I think it's important when one travels to allow oneself to be reduced, which is to say that there is an essential self that is the same whether you are at home or abroad. But sometimes when you go into another place in another country, your education, your financial situation, your uh, accent, whatever else it is that has so much weight and bearing on how everyone perceives you at home becomes invisible. Mm -hmm. And you have to figure out who you are when all of those things are stripped away. And for many people, that's a discovery of a real essence, and it gives them tremendous joy. And for some people, that's a completely terrifying experience. <laughs> I think, though, that even if what you're doing is mostly touristic, you have to observe that these people are different, that they're doing things differently, that their point of view is somewhat different. It's very hard to close yourself off to that entirely. Um, and I think that is enriching. I think just the, the fact of going to places is enriching. Um, I think going into space and having that overview of the world would be incredibly enriching. Um, there is a kind of sophisticated provincialism that some people fall into in which they think that because they went and bought their clothes in a smart boutique in Paris or Milan and because they've gone and know which are the finest hotels and restaurants in those places, they've really engaged with other places. I always think what you need to do is sort of to put yourself in neutral um, and to let yourself be open to what the place you're visiting has to offer and to let yourself most fundamentally become a slightly different person when you're there. Mm. You can go back to being your same old self when you get home, but I think real travel entails letting go of the things not only by which the world has defined you, but of some of the things by which you've defined yourself. And with that, does does that come an element of allowing yourself to be surprised about what you might find, uh, not only about the country that you visited, but also what you might find out about yourself? Absolutely. And I think that element of surprise is, you know, both the joy of travel and the thing that makes it so frightening. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done quite a lot of it, and I think I'm now reasonably comfortable in it. My book begins with the description of my time in Moscow in the late um, 1980s during uh, Glasnost and in the lead up to the demise of the Soviet Union. And I remember going there and feeling completely panic-stricken by thinking there's nothing familiar about this. The place isn't familiar. The language isn't familiar. The topics of conversation aren't familiar. The um, attitudes that people have toward one another aren't familiar. And it felt like being in free fall. And then at some point I sort of landed and I thought, oh, it's all different. And now I can tell more about what this is like and more about who I am. And it's, it's just so interesting and so compelling. And I was writing about artists in um, uh, the late Soviet period. And 
they were heroes. And I realized in the life I'd been growing up in, there was no need for or opportunity for real heroism. And these were people who had functioned on the basis of such deep moral convictions, and they changed my sense of what it meant to live a good life. Um, that thing, I, I'm really interested about um, how the perceptions of other cultures are changed so radically by being immersed in them. I mean, you, you're speaking there about Russia, and of course, Russia and America, even in that period, you know, proper enemies on a, on a political stage. And it, is there something about sort of arriving there and re realizing that despite the cultural differences and that, that terror that you first experienced, that once you had landed and spoken to them, that of course they were not so different perhaps as you had been led to believe by the, the propaganda that we read in, in the news, as you say, the fear that is propagated? Well, the sort of idiotic part of the propaganda is the supposition that good people are all grouped in one geographical area and bad people are all grouped in another one. Yeah. There are good and bad people in the United States. There are good and bad people in the UK. There were good and bad people in the Soviet Union and so on and on and on. Uh, I think that the, uh, the effect of the propaganda to which we're all subject, and I use that word in the relatively informal sense, um, is that one always thinks our culture makes sense and these other cultures are kind of crazy. And I think the experience of traveling is to think these cultures aren't as crazy as I thought and our culture doesn't make such good sense as I thought it does. You know, you're suddenly sort of veering off into a different uh, reality. Um, I think the uh, I think the the real gist of travel is simply doesn't matter whether the way someone else does things is better, or at least it doesn't primarily matter. What primarily matters is understanding that there is another way to do things. It's just that fact. And that fact, which sounds simple, I've just done it in half a sentence, is actually one that you have to go on learning over and over again across a lifetime. Just to finish off, I wanted to ask about your, your children, traveling with your children, um, because as somebody who has children myself, um, you know, there's a really interesting question there about when, when is it too early to travel with a child? And, and, and you suggest that actually it's never too early. They may not remember the trip that you've taken in its you know, specific detail, but the fact of traveling with children straight away means that they're already looking at the world in a different way. And, and you... You tell a great story about your, your child and a Senegalese taxi driver in, in, uh, in New York. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, that story was about my son, George, who when he was um, uh, uh, four was very, very fascinated by maps and spent a lot of time looking at them. And we talked a lot about travel in our household, and we did quite a lot of it. And we were in a taxi, and um, uh, uh, there was some pleasant banter going on with the taxi driver, and one of us said, where did you come from? And he said, Senegal. And then he looked around back at little George and he said, I'll bet you don't know where that is, little boy. And George said, it's immediately south of Mauritania and shares a border with Ghana. And he was so startled <laughs> that he very nearly crashed the taxi. Um, but I am very aware, I bring up my children mostly in New York and um, uh, uh, some of the time here in London. I'm aware of the provincialism that accrues to people who... Um, believe that where they're living is the best and only place where one could live. Mm. Now, 
you know, like all parents, I sort of hope my children will not live too far away when they grow up and so on. But I wanted them to have a sense of the world as full of possibilities. And I found that seeing things anew through their eyes um, opened up a lot of possibilities for me and that I saw things differently than I had. I acquired much of my love of travel from my mother. I feel like it was a worthy legacy she passed on to me and one that I'm pleased to pass on to my children. In terms of the memory question, we don't live our current lives solely for the purpose of creating future memories. We actually experience them while we're living in them. And it's true that when you take children, I mean almost babies on trips, they aren't really registering anything very much, except that they get used to the idea that airplanes are a thing you get on and off of, and airports are a place that you pass through, and that sometimes you're sleeping in a bed here, and sometimes you're sleeping in a very different kind of bed there. So um, by the time that George was five, he'd been in India, he'd been in Brazil. They were mostly places where I was on assignment, and I had to go, and I brought him along in part because I wanted him and my husband to be there so that we could all have a nice time together, but also in part because I thought I don't want to have this life that excludes him and tell him that he isn't old enough for it yet. If he doesn't like doing it at some point, he will not have to. But the reality is that it's turned out that he loves doing it. And when I say to him, what would you like to do this summer? He says, let's go someplace um, with a really a lovely enthusiasm that I must say gives me hope for the future. Well, I hope whatever wherever you go this summer that you both have a, a fantastic time. It has been fascinating to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Huge pleasure for me. Thank you so much.